Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I'm super excited to bring on Jeff Amico from Andreessen. He's the head of network operations, which includes all things governance, staking, and many other things. This week, we have a lot to discuss with him in a variety of topics, starting with governance broadly, delegation, how funds like Andreessen think about supporting the protocols they work with generally, and just other tips and tricks for founders and operators working on designing the protocol. So super excited to have him on today. And it's been a conversation that I think both Larry and I have been looking forward to for quite a while. To jump right into things, Jeff, you're the head of network operations at A16Z. Some people might know what that means, but others might not. Could you talk a bit about what you work on and your background? Absolutely. And thanks, Derek and Larry, for having me on. I'm really excited for this conversation. I lead the network operations group at A16Z. Our team really oversees and guides all of the firm's participation and engagement in all of the protocols, networks, DAOs, et cetera, that we invest in out of the crypto fund. Everything from running validator nodes and staking on layer one networks and layer two networks to help participate in consensus and to support the network at an infrastructure level to participating actively in governance, directly voting on things participating in forums and things like that, and also indirectly in things like delegation, like you mentioned. Also, other types of areas of support, things like providing liquidity and other types of functions that are designed to really help our protocols and networks bootstrap at the early phases and then ultimately scale out into decentralized networks over the long term. This is a group that we have really purpose-built for the specific needs of crypto protocols and have gone about building this very methodically over the last year and a half. And it's been exciting to define the core purpose of the group and then apply it across many different categories from DeFi to NFTs to layer one networks to stable coins and so on. So it's constantly evolving. It's constantly growing. And it's exciting to continue supporting our networks in this way. Super interesting. And what is the makeup of the team? It really spans across all of the different deal team members and operating teams. So I lead the team. I work very closely with my colleague, Porter Smith, who is fantastic. And then we work closely with folks on the deal team who are plugged in to these investments from the outset. And then we kind of work cross-functionally across all the different operating teams as well. Something that I found really interesting, Jeff, is I think we got connected over a year ago now. And when we first got connected, I forget who made the connection, but it was someone basically said, hey, Andreessen has a governance team. I think at the time, and still to this day, a year later, it's not very common for funds, large funds in particular, to have folks focused full-time on governance. What was the inspiration for Andreessen starting the team? And how are you guys thinking about it at this point, since it's been around for over a year now? It very much derived out of a need that we felt from our portfolio companies for us to be active in the operation of these networks from a governance standpoint and otherwise. What we realized over the course of the last two years is that the role of a venture capital investor in this space is very, very different from the role of a VC in Web2 and in prior eras. And there is an expectation that VCs will be participatory, that they will contribute not only thought leadership in the form of research and things like that, but also just participate in the operation of these networks. The reason for that ultimately is that these protocols are inherently meant to be governed and operated by their communities, which is a very big shift from the way that companies are typically built and run in Web2. 
Here, if you are a community member, if you're a token holder, or if you're other stakeholder in the ecosystem, the onus is really on you to contribute resources and to pitch in on whether it's contributing computing power, in the case of a layer one network, or participating in governance and just the basic operation of these networks. And so we very much pick up that mantle and believe that if we're going to be a good faith contributor, we need to build out the resources internally to be able to stay on top of this stuff, to engage deeply and fundamentally in the protocols. And by the way, this work is hard. As you guys know, as a fellow governance leader and participant, it's fundamentally non-scalable in some sense. You need to really understand the protocols. You need to really dig in. If you're going to be able to contribute intelligently, you have to do that work. So it's something that we are continually building out that internal muscle and looking to apply it across all these different contexts. That's really where it started and where we are today. Super helpful. I think there's a lot of things we could talk about on this podcast, aside from governance, the staking side and providing liquidity. We'll probably focus mostly on governance just given our work here. But before we dive super into specifics, let's take a step back. Why is governance important? And why is it important for people to be actively involved in protocol governance in the first place? Governance is just fundamentally at the heart of crypto. It has been since the very outset. And I think of crypto and Web3 as really offering an alternative and a new set of tools to build infrastructure and systems to support transactions, engagements, property rights even, that don't really need to rely on the same set of gatekeepers and intermediaries who have defined the last 100 years of web services or financial services or entertainment. Now we have the tools to really build a different system. And I think that is fundamentally profound. I also think whether or not that vision ultimately comes to pass and whether we can achieve those goals comes down to governance. It comes down to whether we build and put in place the right type of governance models in these systems, both at layer one, designing the right incentives between different nodes in the system, and within DAOs at the application layer, making sure that we are properly balancing rights and responsibilities between different actors in a DAO, for example, making sure that we are properly striking the right trade-off between, on the one hand, building systems that are credibly neutral and building systems, on the other hand, that are just operationally efficient. There's a fundamental tension there that we always have to grapple with. So these might seem like minute things that are secondary, but is very much determinative of the trajectory of this space. I also think more tactically, what we kind of call governance, broadly speaking, in crypto really is much more today closely aligned with the basic operation of a company. If you think about the decisions and the actions that we all undertake under this label of governance, they are fundamental operating and kind of managerial choices around what type of interest rates should a protocol like Compound be implementing or what types of assets should be added to the protocol. And so I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to think of this stuff just as governance. If you, you know, zoom over to corporate governance, that label tends to refer more narrowly to something like, what are like the rules and structures that we put in place to order the interactions between different stakeholders, between a board and between shareholders and between managers? It's a little bit more constrained. Whereas in crypto governance, this is really the meat and potatoes of these enterprises. And so Again, I think for that reason, you really need to be thoughtful about this stuff and dedicate resources to participating in it. I'm glad, Jeff, that you brought up corporate governance, because I think if we take a step back, 
for a second, and we just talk about governance. A lot of people have very different mental models for what governance is. Some people who maybe worked in politics or policy, they view governance and their mental model for governance is how countries are governed, democracies or dictatorships. And then some people who come from the corporate and commercial world, they certainly look at the corporate governance of America, right? Where their shareholders and the board and management interact together. How do you think of crypto governance? What are the inspirations that you take when looking at these projects and how they make decisions? If you look at the way that we even talk about governance and the labels we use in crypto, I think it's very clear that the inspiration is drawn more so from the political governance side and the political philosophy side, just down to the words we use. Words like delegate, or even just words like voting and things like this, very much seen through the lens of political philosophy more so than corporate governance. And that makes sense. We think about the origins of the space. It very much was born out of a certain political orientation and ways of thinking. I do think, though, that as the space matures and continues to evolve, especially at the application layer and within DAOs, I do think we can really learn quite a bit from traditional corporate governance. There is benefit in allocating different types of responsibilities and authorities to different experts in your network or in your enterprise. You've seen some very early attempts at governance at the application layer that I think is very much more aligned with democratic political governance, when in reality, I think if these networks and these DAOs are to continue to grow and evolve, I think they do need to borrow a bit more from traditional corporate models. Now, that's not to say that we should just port over the traditional legacy corporate governance system here. The beauty of this technology is that it allows you to get the benefits of the underlying system. So you can build applications that are credibly neutral if they are built around immutable smart contracts and so forth. But I think we can also get a lot of the benefits of more traditional corporate structures where we delegate certain rights and responsibilities to people who are subject matter experts in those areas. I think there are reasons why corporations tend to set up units or teams or working groups who are dedicated to a given area, whether that's growth or finance or legal or so on. If you marry that first concept I mentioned around neutrality, you're building your system in a mostly non-upgradable way with this other component of delegating responsibility to experts, I think you can kind of get the best of both worlds. So long as you allow the token holders at the end of the day to have a check on who you are putting in a place of authority, I think it is fundamentally better than a lot of the corporate governance systems that we've seen over the last hundred years. What's super interesting to me is there's so many trade-offs when it comes to governance. Like generally in America, companies are run for the profit of shareholders. And a lot of the governance decisions stem to optimize that, which is how we run the company to optimize for the bottom line. But if you look at other parts of the world, like Japan and parts of Europe, companies are typically not run with the exclusive focus on optimizing for shareholder returns. And there's pretty broad mandates sometimes, like what is good for the people and the citizens of this country in which this company operates. And I think as we mature as an industry in crypto, one governance decision we'll have to make is what are we optimizing for? Is it for the user? Is it for the token holder? Is it for some other general concept? But we don't have those answers yet. That and also, Larry, that's a great point, but also are we optimizing for, even within the protocol itself, are we optimizing for a protocol that is 
neutral? And is that the highest order that we're trying to build towards? A protocol that will remain neutral and persistent and will not discriminate against users and will run forever. At the other end of the spectrum, you could imagine a different type of approach. Are we optimizing for a system that is very quickly upgradable and that you can ship constant new features and things like that? If you're optimizing for that, then I think that warrants a very different type of governance model. In my mind, you know, as between those two ends of the spectrum, I tend to think that the applications that optimize more towards the former end will be the ones who tend to define this era. I think the fundamental unlock of blockchains are that they enable the creation of credibly neutral applications for the first time. Applications that are run outside the control of any one person, any one team, any one investor. That is what is fundamentally enabled by this technology. There are always areas where you will need the input of individuals, of teams. And so I think marrying that original design preference of building things that are neutral and mostly non-upgradable with a well-designed DAO operating model to fill in the gaps where they emerge. I tend to think of that as at least my ideal approach. So to jump straight into some of the more specifics, I think a lot of people are curious at a large fund like Andreessen with a ton of different protocols and governance decisions to look into, what does the general process look like internally in terms of how you guys do research into these different proposals and how you guys gain internal consensus? Like, what is the internal governance process? I think people see the end product but don't understand what goes into it. It is fundamentally very deep and involved. We write memos on every single governance proposal that comes up. We work cross-functionally, again, with folks on our legal team, with folks on our deal team, folks on our data science and engineering team to make sure that the decisions we are taking are well-considered. As I mentioned, we take the responsibility incredibly seriously and only want to participate in areas that we feel like we are equipped to do so intelligently. In terms of the typical process, we'll be tracking proposals as they come up. Folks on my team will dig in and try to understand all sides of the proposal. We'll produce memos that will circulate internally. We'll get sign-off from the relevant members of the team, and then ultimately we'll go about executing the thing on chain. Ultimately, at least for some of the more high-profile stuff, we'll also be sure to share our thinking and our rationale, either on the forums or on Twitter, to make sure that people understand why we voted one way or the other. While there are some proposals and some concepts that apply across different protocols, a lot of it is deeply unscalable and specific work, and each proposal is unique. They all have their different governance standards and voting processes, and that's a separate topic, but that's another thing that could be standardized or cleaned up a little bit. Do you guys get a lot of teams messaging you and asking for votes, almost lobbying style? Is that something that you guys see a lot of? It doesn't happen as much as you might expect. I think we're pretty clear across the board that we're going to be voting independently. We're going to do our own research and analysis on this stuff. But like any system, there are discussions that happen. To some extent, I think that reflects a bit of a shortcoming in the way that a lot of the prevailing models are designed, where every single decision of the enterprise is subjected to the referendum of all token holders. As we kind of naturally move away from that model and we place a little bit more delegated responsibility in the hands of different teams or different sub or whatever you want to call it, this lobbying of the big token holders will continue to fade away, which is a good thing ultimately. We want to be 
in the position where we as an investor are putting in place teams and allowing them to really execute on their particular subject matter. As I mentioned earlier, we want to make sure that we and other token holders have a check and ideally a real-time check on the performance of those entities. That's what makes it, I think, substantively different and better from many traditional corporate governance models. But overall, our hope is that we will continue to build out some of the operational structures to place the real subject matter experts in charge of different areas within a DAO. I think traditional venture investors, when a company obviously goes public and the traditional equities world, like the role of venture investors really stops for the most part. Sometimes they may still be on the board, but I think for a lot of VCs, it's they see their role as ending there and they'll step off boards and focus again on early stage investing. With crypto, launching on mainnet, having a product and having a token, that's really still just the start. Once you have a token, you probably need a ton more things compared to before. And I think a lot of crypto investors sort of are still stuck in a mindset of once a token is live, their responsibilities and role is decreasing. But I think there's so much to do that the sort of most active and best funds, like they're not stopping there. They're continuing to double down and get involved. So overall, big fan of this approach and think you guys are ahead of the curve. It's a balance that we want to strike. We want to be there supporting these protocols and the surrounding ecosystems. We don't want to attempt to control them in any meaningful sense. I think we want to participate in a way that strikes that balance between being engaged, being supported, being active, being thoughtful, but not trying to go beyond that and exert undue influence on the process or try to dictate the outcomes unilaterally. And so that's really where the importance of delegation, I think, is most prominent. Our general approach is to vote with a portion of our tokens and then to delegate the rest. We find that is the right balance between all of these different considerations. And we want to contribute our views. We want to help get these DAOs up and running, maybe contribute some ideas around just operational management and professionalize them at the early outset. But we also want to get other perspectives reflected in governance and very much are of the belief that our perspective is only one perspective. We would be remiss to not take advantage of delegation to really broaden the aperture and to get more diversity of perspectives reflected in governance. To double down and double click on this delegation topic, for any listeners that are unaware, A16Z has been delegating a portion of their tokens for certain networks for, I want to say, almost a year now. And they've had this delegation program, and I've seen a bunch of different teams and individuals participate. But if you had to like talk about this program from a retrospective, any things you change, any main takeaways, what would they be? We've been doing this now for about a year and a half, as you mentioned. It started with protocols like Uniswap and has since evolved to now span, I think, five or six different protocols. And we're constantly looking to grow it from here. We've worked with a really, really broad and fantastic network of different delegates from nonprofits like Kiva, Mercy Corps, She256, to student clubs at universities really across the world at this point, to individuals and community leaders. It's been, I think, a really resounding success. But look, I think we view it as impactful for two reasons. One, as I mentioned, it really helps to get the wheels of governance spinning, especially early on when the token might not be broadly disseminated throughout the community. So it helps to get tokens off of the sideline, out of cold storage, so to speak, and into the hands of people who are leaders in a given ecosystem. It's critical 
for that function. And then the other really important thing is that it just helps to get more people engaged across the board. We've really enjoyed working with a lot of the students that we delegate to. We've enjoyed working with a lot of the nonprofits that we delegate to. We see it as a way to give many of those individuals a foot in the door that they would not have had otherwise. And we've seen many of them emerge as leaders in these new ecosystems. Many of the students go on to join the companies or to join other top-notch protocols in the space. It's really a way to provide an opportunity to many people who would not have otherwise had the means to buy the tokens themselves and participate that way. So it's really, I think, a good way to expand access at a very deep level as well. And on that point, Jeff, I'm sure you see this all the time on Twitter. It always cracks me up. But whenever people see Andreessen delegates to someone, a lot of conspiracy types, they say, oh, you know, Andreessen's actually pulling the strings behind the scenes when they delegate to someone like the organizations you mentioned. And I think the people who know, know that's not true. And you guys pretty much never ask anyone to vote in the way you guys vote. But could you speak to that? Because I think it is a bit funny on Twitter when people say stuff like that. It's certainly a conspiracy theory that we see. As you mentioned, Larry, we could not be more hands-off as it relates to our delegates. We'll check in with our delegates just to do regular catch-ups. But beyond that, we have never told the delegate to vote one way or the other. And frankly, we also take a further step in setting up the delegation itself with the delegation agreements that we have all of our delegates sign, a very basic agreement. We actually posted this online for everyone to see that puts in place some contractual restrictions on our ability to ever withdraw the delegations for some long period of time. And really what that's designed to do is to help give our delegates comfort and assurance that they can vote however they see fit. And we're not going to be able to pull the tokens back. We've never done it to date. It's an important mechanism to only further bolster that sense of independence and that notion of this being a truly arm's length relationship. I think a lot of the listeners of this podcast are folks that are in the process of bootstrapping their own DAO and thinking of what are the key decisions to automate? Do I need humans to decide treasury spend? For new projects in your portfolio that are thinking through these questions, like what do those conversations look like? And what do you guys talk about in terms of using specific governance frameworks or, or figuring out which are the most important parameters to adjust? When we bring a new project into the portfolio, the advice or guidance we give them is always going to be a little bit bespoke based on what they're building. For example, the DAO that you might set up to run a social club or a collector DAO will probably look very different and have different types of requirements than something like Compound, which is a DAO that is effectively safeguarding a protocol that has $10 billion of money locked in it and flowing through it. It's always a little bit bespoke. In general, if I were to sum up some general rules of thumb, the DAO models that try to minimize the amount of governance decisions that are subjected to token holder votes are probably the ones that are going to be most successful long-term. The way you do that is to be very thoughtful at the outset around what type of functions, what type of levers can we truly bake into the code of the protocol such that they don't need constant intervention and constant consensus from the token holders. Obviously, there are certain things beyond that that are just at least today, not automatable. The main thing that comes to mind there is treasury spend. It does make sense to me that for certain large dollar value treasury spends, those should be subject to token holders writ large. It's kind of like in traditional corporate governance, if any time a company was thinking about an M&A transaction, 
even more analogous, potentially a stock sale above a certain size, you would need to get consent of equity holders. There are things that it does make sense to always subject to your broad token holder base. But beyond that, the general direction that we're seeing, and I think we're broadly supportive of, is identifying experts in given ecosystems, delegating to them authority to execute things without always needing to subject them to broad token holder consent. Those are just a few kind of initial high level things. But as I mentioned, it always does vary based on what the particular company is building. That's a good point. And something that Larry and I definitely talk about a lot is, in most cases, the governance process has a high degree of overhead. And you don't need the full process for most decisions. And we're starting to see a new class of teams, individuals, and other service providers working on each of these specific functional areas, from treasury to risk to community management to other things. And I think it's going to be a combination of existing and new crypto companies, individual contributors and protocol politicians, and traditional businesses that realize the opportunity. And I think we're still at the very beginning. We've spoken to some of these folks like Gauntlet and Getty Hill and Monet Supply. We're sort of in very early innings still. What we've realized is that token holders at large are A, not all that interested in voting on every minor thing that comes up. Let's say a random parameter tweak in compound. And B, they also in many cases don't feel fully qualified to opine intelligently on that given thing. We're kind of relearning why it makes sense to put in place subdows or things like that. Now, critically, I don't think we need to just recreate regular corporate governance. I think if you retain the power to withdraw that authority at any given time, I think that is a meaningful upgrade. But I think we are generally moving in that direction, it seems. Jeff, I'd love to chat with you a little about the different governance frameworks that are out there in the market and your thoughts on them. There's obviously compound governance contracts. There's the Aave ones element is releasing a new governance design. But as someone who has a vantage point into all these governance systems, what's your general take on these frameworks and how teams should think about which one to choose? It kind of varies again based on what you're building. If what you're building is a protocol that you intend to be robust and secure and you hope to stick around for the next 100 years, you probably want something closer to Governor Bravo, which Compound has in place. That governance framework is intentionally very conservative. It designs and optimizes for stability and neutrality over upgradability. And that makes sense if that's what you're building. On the other hand, building something that requires a little bit less robustness or security or ongoing neutrality, then I don't think you necessarily need something with those particular features and those particular kind of rule sets. So that might allow for something a little bit less robust, a little bit less prescriptive in the way that upgrades are implemented into the protocol. I think in general, though, I'm a big fan personally of experimentations that try to strike a middle ground. You mentioned elements a little while ago. I think they're a great example of this. They require upgrades to be fully processed through on-chain governance, but they also grant certain individuals, members, teams within the ecosystem, the ability and the authority to make certain decisions that they are probably better suited to make. This comes back to that idea 
uh, do you need to subject every minor decision to broad token holder consent? I think probably not. What they have done with their council model is to allow the token holders to select individuals who they think are going to be leaders in that ecosystem and then empower them to make certain basic decisions and to have somewhat greater privileges as it relates to the governance process. I think something like that strikes a nice middle ground. A lot of people see DAO governance and they're like, well, this doesn't work. This is really slow. And as a result, they just write DAOs off as a concept. But people don't really think about how corporate governance, it's not like most people understand it. Most corporate governance is still a pain in the ass for most people. I don't think most founders know where their corporate docs look like. And if they do, they certainly paid lawyers a lot of money to look into it. And so in my mind, DAOs can succeed in spite of all these governance challenges and do just fine. And companies are a good indication of that. Look at MakerDAO, for example. It's a protocol that I think has probably the greatest claim on decentralization, maybe of any DAO in the ecosystem. They're a highly functioning protocol that is making significant amounts of money and is safeguarding one of the most important assets in all of crypto in the form of DAI. I think a lot of teams can look up to that and can take examples from what Maker has done to prove that it's hard for sure, but it is in fact possible to build something that is both decentralized and gets all of the benefits of that, but is also operationally efficient for the most part. Maybe it's not quite as seamless or easy to upgrade certain things, but that's also by design. So I think they are a great example of someone who has found that right point on the spectrum between those two ends. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the maker example is interesting. Like the core unit model, for the most part, is working pretty well. Do you have any other thoughts on how teams should be structuring and protocols really should be overseeing and managing these different working groups? Should it be a bunch of different autonomous working groups that apply for funding and get feedback every quarter, maker style? Should there be a more formalized reporting process? How should teams thinking about organizing these contributors into a clean and efficient structure that also gives them room to maneuver on their own? I'll come back to maker again. What Maker did really well was to lay out a proposed structure for how the DAO might end up being instantiated before they went about fully taking their hands off the wheel. So the kind of MIPS around setting up the core units, I think, were really smart and I think gave a direction and a sense of guidance to the community to then pick up what they proposed and fill out the bones of what the core team had laid out. To the extent that teams can do something similar to try to give some guidance to the community as to what might make sense given the specifics of the protocol, I think those are likely to be DAOs that are more likely to succeed. We've seen examples in the other direction where a protocol might decentralize a little bit too early and not give any kind of direction to what the community should do as far as setting up the DAO and building any of these structures. And I think that tends to work a little bit less well. Makes a ton of sense. I think depending on the focus and life cycle of the project and where they are in their decentralization roadmap, it just depends on those things. And it could be an iterative process, starting with one or two different focus groups. And over time, core product is something that the community itself can upgrade and manage. Exactly. Overall, I think the most important thing, though, is just matching subject matter experts in given areas with the responsibilities in those areas and delegating the authority to those individuals. 
people who are closer to the ground and are really an expert in something like risk, like Gauntlet, for example, they're probably going to be a better person to execute that function than token holders generally. So the more that you can delegate or identify leaders in given areas and give them the authority to run with it, ultimately, token holders still need to retain the ability to replace them. And maybe they set their budgets as well and things like that. But I think that split of consent at a high level by token holders and then subject matter expertise at the low level, I think, strikes the right balance. And there's a lot of folks listening to these podcasts that are starting to get active in governance and starting to be active in the Discord on the forums and trying to be delegates, whether it's for something like Element or for other protocols through meta governance. Are there any pieces of advice you would have for someone trying to get active as a delegate in governance? Someone that has some useful specific skill set or knowledge and is looking to apply it. Of the delegates that you guys are impressed by and you guys enjoyed the proposal that they've put out, are there any common threads that you can point newcomers to? The most important thing is just to demonstrate subject matter expertise in a given area. That's probably the quickest way to make a name for yourself and to demonstrate what your value add is going to be to a new ecosystem. So we mentioned many of them already, like Gauntlet and ones like that, but also just like individual contributors like Getty. You know, you've had Getty on a few times. He has made a name for himself the old-fashioned way, just contributing in the forums, introducing proposals, things like that, and has become a delegate across many different protocols organically in that way. I think another helpful development that we've seen lately is a lot of protocols facilitating the onboarding of new delegates more than what was the case previously. That might mean when a protocol launches with a token, they are creating a portal or a platform where new delegates can come and advertise themselves. Protocols like Gitcoin or ENS, Maker has done the same thing. Element is doing that now. Providing a platform for individuals to step up and to articulate what their value add is going to be just makes this process all the easier on the delegate side as well. Switching gears a little bit, Something we at Reverie have found pretty challenging is just getting context on a governance proposal where the information may live on the forums, on Discord, sometimes maybe there was a Twitter spaces discussion, Reddit for some project, and a bunch of other places. And having one cohesive tool to understand what people are talking about where and where there is signal and where there is noise, it really is challenging. And then when you multiply that by 20, 30, 40 projects, it basically becomes impossible. Are there tips you have for how you do it or maybe tools you use that make your life easier? Because we struggle with this. I don't. And if you find one, let me know. Maybe this is a good call to action for any aspiring entrepreneurs <laughs> listening in. We will definitely fund an investment in something that does this exact thing. It's very, very challenging. I think, as you mentioned, we want to be intelligently informed on all of the stuff that we're voting on. That can be difficult to track across all these different platforms. And then you compound that with just the quantity of different protocols that are out there with on-chain governance. It becomes very cumbersome. So I think to date, at least, we're still doing it the old-fashioned way. We're digging into the forums. We're jumping on community calls. We're active in discords. Where it makes sense, we'll set up calls with maybe a sponsor of a given proposal just to understand it a little bit more before we vote one way or the other, before we articulate our view publicly. But it's still mostly the old-fashioned way, and it's still hard work for sure. Jeff, are there any specific types of proposals or just general class of like governance initiatives that you're surprised that people haven't been working on and proposed? 
there's a lot of ideas, obviously, and we're starting to see more proposals, but are there any ones that stand out that really need people to take the rein? I think in general, proposals around hiring service providers to fill key operating functions are really, really important. And outside of a few specific examples, haven't really seen that much traction. To give a concrete example of what I'm talking about, we've seen a handful of these actually in Compound alone, where the protocol has gone about identifying a need for a given area that might be something like risk assessment, risk modeling. It might mean something like audit services and security. It might mean something like treasury management or growth. And then running a process to identify the right service provider from start to end, and then going about actually hiring that service provider from the protocol natively. I see this as a way that DAOs can continue to scale and continue to fulfill all of those essential operating functions, which by the way, aren't going away. They're still there. They just need to be picked up and executed by others, but to do so in a decentralized way that doesn't rely on the core team into perpetuity. I very much support further efforts in that direction. I'm sure you guys have seen stuff like that. And I'm curious if you guys have views on that kind of general trend from your side. I strongly agree, Jeff, that just like companies outsource a lot of functions to outside vendors, maybe it's legal, accounting and operations, audits. If you're a pre-launch DAO, you'll outsource audits to an audit firm. DAOs really should consider outsourcing a lot of things that are not core to the DAO's product. It just lets them move more quickly and get better quality service at a very fair price from outside vendors. And Reverie, we actually worked on the compound proposal for selecting an auditor. And, you know, there's just so much demand for stuff like that. I think the challenge that we've seen is a lot of vendors are just not comfortable with selling to DAOs. It's tricky. It's not intuitive to do all these governance proposals. Asking for money in public has been really awkward for a lot of them, particularly when they're used to negotiating in private. I think we're getting there, but it definitely has not been as easy as we thought it would be. It is a tricky motion for sure. And there's also, at least to date, only a somewhat select few service providers who are set up to do it. And then on the DAO side, there's still a relatively constrained number of DAOs who have the resources to be able to hire someone like Gauntlet or Open Zeppelin. I expect that that will change and this will emerge, but we're still early on. Derek, just coming back to your original question, we're very much supportive of proposals in this general direction, which tend to professionalize the overall operation of a DAO and to bring in really, really high quality and talented experts in given areas to pick up the reins after the core team steps back and hands them off. Just as a general matter, I think stuff like that is smart and is the way a lot of these DAOs are going to scale going forward. Definitely feels like that's a process that's actively happening right now. Might not be super talked about a lot on Twitter, but I think a lot of protocol teams are recognizing just all the different needed roles and responsibilities that the DAO has after the token launches and realizing that the founding team does not have the expertise or the bandwidth to go after a lot of it. And I think that realization is now spawning, as you said, a new class of service providers and companies to fill that gap and slowly coming together. It's taking time, but it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the coming year. I think it just is reflective of the maturation of these protocols. I think if you get to a certain point where a protocol is widely used, widely adopted, widely trusted, going forward, you need to ensure that it's going to remain safe and it's going to remain operating the way it was originally designed. 
coming back to Compound for a second, if you look at their treasury product, for example, Compound Treasury, which is built on top of the Compound Protocol, this is a growing business, which is depending now on this underlying protocol, continuing to be safe, continuing to be sound, continuing to have the right risk parameters in place and to continuing to not be exposed to hacks or exploits. As these protocols continue to mature and to have things built on top of them that are depending on them, it's going to be essential that we have real experts who can look after them and continue to oversee their continued growth from here. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Super interesting discussion. Talked a lot about a bunch of different topics in the governance space and really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thanks, guys. Really, really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun.